The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, a senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, it's been a very exciting week for us here at the China Africa Project. Lots of new things that are going on. For those of you who've been following us on social media, you'll know we've relaunched our website at chinaafricaproject.com, and there is just a ton of great content that's there, lots of new features. We really hope that everybody will go and check it out. We've also got uh, a new China Africa Experts Network. And if you would like to be a part of that experts network, if you are connected to China and Africa and development or in international affairs in some way, it is meant for professionals and to make it easier for journalists, scholars, artists, activists, everybody to connect with one another. Uh, you can sign up right there on our website. And we also today, uh, just this week, uh, have launched our new daily email newsletter. Uh, and that is those subscriptions are starting at $149 per year or $15 per month. But boy, if you want a chock full of China Africa news and Cobus edited it today and uh, it was it was jam packed. So uh, a very busy week that we've got going on here, Cobus. Yes, it's very exciting. Um, and it's it's fantastic to be able to bring people, you know, daily insights on the China Africa scene where you can there you really see how complicated, uh, complex the, the China Africa space is, how much there's going on, how much of it changes on a daily basis. So it's, it's fascinating to track it. And the last thing is we've also launched today is a, a new initiative called Student Exchange where we are engaging high school and college kids from China, Africa, and around the world to share their input on, on China-Africa relations and their outlook on this. Really, at the end of the day, it comes down to the fact that the median age in Africa is 19.4 years old. So if you are not listening to what teenagers in Africa have to say, you are simply not listening to Africa and finding out what's going on. Similarly, in China, if you don't only if you only listen to what the old people over 35 say, yes, those are the olds, um, you're missing what the younger generation and they are so different in their worldview and their outlook. So go check it out. Scroll to the very bottom of the page. You'll see, uh, you know, the student exchange. We, we have a lot of faculty and, and professors who also and teachers who listen to the show. So if you would like your students to have their work featured on the China Africa Project and included in that daily email newsletter that goes to lots of powerful people in Washington, Beijing, Pretoria, London, uh, go ahead, send me an email, eric at chinaafricaproject.com. We'll get you all signed up and we'd love to have you a part of it. Okay, enough of the log rolling. Let's get on with our show. Kobus, um, I have to admit that today's discussion forced me to do a little bit of self-reflection on how we cover China-Africa relations. Most of the time, in fact, I'll say all of the time when we cover uh, this story, we do it from a very top-down perspective. That is, every single time Xi Jinping says something or Prime Minister Li Keqiang says something, ambassadors like Wu Peng, Wu Peng or Lin Songtian says something, any president in Africa says something, we give it a lot of attention. We write about it. On our website, we talk about it on the podcast. What we don't do, and I was going back over the 10 years that you and I have been working on this together, is we never 
focus on it from the bottom up. What is it like for all of those people, those hundreds of thousands of Chinese migrants uh, who live in Africa, who are working on the roads, who are working in the stores, we never focus on their stories. And I think it's a very, very big oversight in the broader China-Africa discourse. Yes, and even when we talk about them specifically, we, we end up having, by default, because it's so difficult to do that kind of on-the-ground work, we, we end up falling back on narratives. You know, so, so we've looked in the past at, for example, narratives that these wor- workers who build roads, for example, in places like Ethiopia, are actually uh, you know, um, in prison inmates, you know, forced to, to, to come to Africa to work. For example, that, that kind of myth that we've been myth-busting over several years. Um, or, you know, the, the stories about skills transfer or, you know, percentages of employment of African workers. But, you know, to do the actual work, to actually find out what life is like for, for these Chinese people working on these road projects and then for the African workers working with them, it takes actually going there, actually dealing with the languages involved, actually building up the networks. So, you know, that's something that's simply beyond our capability. And for that reason, it's so incredibly important to speak with people who do that kind of research. Now, we've talked about how the Chinese are partially to blame for this. In fact, maybe a lot to blame for it because so often they are inaccessible. Journalists will come and researchers will come and they'll try to engage state-owned companies, the Chinese embassies, uh, any Chinese organizations, and what they get is no comment and they get pushed away. So it is very difficult to break through, and that is why we are so excited to have Miriam Driesen, who's a postdoctoral researcher at the Oxford University China Center and also an anthropologist by training. And she is the author of a fascinating new book, Tales of Hope, Tastes of Bitterness, Chinese Road Builders in Ethiopia. It was published in June 2019 by Hong Kong University Press. And she joins us from, I think, Oxford or London. Where, um, where are you joining us from today, Miriam? <laughs> That's correct. I'm joining you from Oxford. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Congratulations on the book. Thank you very much. Uh, it, it, it was, it's been described uh, as an unprecedented ethnographic research among Chinese road builders in Ethiopia. And you do start your book through the story of, of, of really of, of, of the point of view of those individuals that we oftentimes brush over in our discussions. You, you really talk about the individual. And in, fa- in part, you talked about one gentleman by the name of Yu Bohai. And, and I'd like you to kind of maybe tell us a little bit about your book and, and bring and introduce us to who Mr. Yu is and why he's important. Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me on the show. So what drove my research and what drives it uh, still is one big question is what drives so many Chinese men often, especially in the beginning, it was mostly men who migrated to Africa, to Africa, and you is one one of them. And what um, fascinated me or what intrigued me was that uh, most of these men, they actually felt they were pushed out of, of, of China um, and part of the reason um, was the social pressure, as they often um, termed it, um, that brought them to Africa to to earn a, a higher salary and to be able to, for young men, be able to buy a house and get married or to enter society, so to say. And this was you as well. And um, so I met him in 2011 and followed him up through 2017 
but he felt that he was, and and I, I talk about this, um, discussing the many lives of, of the migrants in Ethiopia, is that they're in a way stuck, stuck between China and Africa, um, as in they cannot go back because if they go back, there is um, no employment for them, or there is employment, but it earns much less, so they have to compromise on a salary, and um, they cannot maintain the kind of middle-class lifestyle, because often these men, they come from rural backgrounds. And again, like you, you said, I'm talking about those at the very bottom of the corporate hierarchy. They they try to climb up or to keep up with development at home, but they, they struggle to, 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 to get um, where they want. And so that kind of um, forces them to, to stay. And this pattern, I argue in my book, of um, the backgrounds of these men, the experiences they have in China, their views of, of development in China, they inform... Um, what I call Chinese-led development from below in um, in Ethiopia. So I've done all my research in in Ethiopia. And what what do you what do you mean by Chinese uh, development from below? So Chinese-led development from below from below. I really mean um, the bottom-up perspective of Chinese individuals who carry out infrastructure projects across Africa, or this case in in Ethiopia, and they're daily experiences, so the everyday interactions on the construction site, like answering very simple questions such as how do they engage with Ethiopian laborers, how do they communicate, they don't have a common language, and how do they overcome cultural differences. So they're, um, they face a lot of barriers that they have to overcome because they have to, in the end, they have to ultimately um, strike sort of consensus to make to carry out the construction work, right? And that's that's what they have to have to do. So these these construction zones, they they are some scholars call them contact zones, where different cultures meet and 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 often clash with each other, and they have to find ways to to cope with each other, um, basically. <laughs> yeah, and so much of that coping in the in the discussion that we have focuses on the African side. And again, I don't want to take anything away from any of the grievances that have come up on the African side, whether it's in Kenya at the hands of insensitive or racially intolerant uh, managers on the standard gauge railway or other instances across the continent, which are legitimate and verified. That's So that's not my point here. My point here is that we also don't focus as much attention on the uh, the feelings, the expectations of what the Chinese, these Chinese migrant workers are feeling, in part because we never really get a chance to talk with them. I'd like to read a little bit from from your book about this, this question of expectations that people like Ubohai have when they come. And it sounds like Ubohai for you was a character who represented uh, a lot of different people. I mean, it wasn't just him when he says these things. Let me read a little bit and get your get your impression on this, uh, mm-hmm. and you can explain. To survive in Ethiopia meant to swallow disappointment. Yu's initial expectations of life and work there stood in sharp relief to the less rosy realities on the ground, leaving him disenchanted. He could not get his head around why Ethiopians were so unwelcoming, or as he put it, unfriendly, quote-unquote. He said, We Chinese are being discriminated against. Convinced of the benevolence of their activities, Yu, like many of his co-workers, had imagined Ethiopians to be keenly awaiting Chinese development assistance. Like most Chinese road builders in Ethiopia, 
Yu was puzzled by and resentful of the apparent ingratitude of Ethiopians, their lack of cooperation, and worse, their repeated attempts to sabotage the building work. I thought that was fascinating because there was this gap that he thought that he was going to come to a place like Ethiopia and really be, well, people would be grateful to him as a Chinese person for doing what he's doing, being very far away from his family, suffering quite a bit. And uh, and yet he's pretty bitter and pretty resentful of, of what it is. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that. That is right. And that also refers to the title, Tales of Hope, Tastes of Bitterness, where I um, which describes the the discrepancy between um, expectations and and also the narratives that go about in the media and uh, in policy uh, spheres and other other spheres and the reality on the ground. Um, because Chinese workers, including the road builders I worked with, they really firmly believed in. Um, what they were doing was an act of goodwill. It was helping Africans develop, have, helping Ethiopia become more prosperous and, and, and developed. And so they couldn't quite understand why Ethiopians were often quite resentful of their labor practices or, um, or resisting the, the construction works, such as local residents um, often obstructed the works um, for issues that there were quite land land related issues often but because they were in in daily contact with the chinese the chinese were to blame in this case of course it's the ethiopian government who has to annex the land for the chinese um, contractors but the ethiopian government is not on site these chinese they go to all these remote places and they get their in daily um, interaction with the local local people but i guess so in this book um, as you mentioned, um, the question of agency from the African side, and there have been uh, many um, brilliant studies of, of Africanists who have looked at the agency of African workers, bureaucrats, uh, diplomats, etc. But in this book, I very much wanted to show the perceived lack of agency on the Chinese side. So these men often perceive themselves as victims. And this, this, this victim, which translated in narratives of bitterness, um, and which uh, there is a Chinese term for suku, is telling bitterness, which was very prevalent on these construction sites. Um, but this agency... So Chinese perceiving themselves as victims not only of their workers, who often were recalcitrant, but also local officials and stubborn residents, like I said, who um, who obstructed the building building work. Um, but this, this is a very complex issue um, because their Ethiopians were, of course, responding to certain uh, relations of power. There's this... Uh, power imbalance between Chinese management and local workers or Chinese and Ethiopians more more generally that they sought to restore. So their answer was very much their their behavior and their acts uh, were very much a response to uh, what they saw as exploitation sometimes, not so strong, but um, but an imbalance in, in power relations. Um, so this kind of victimhood 
Um, and this narrative, there's no no space for this narrative in, in the kind of Africa-China debates that we have, because on the Chinese side, there's China and Africa as a success story. And then in the West, actually, is also acknowledges that, that Chinese involvement is very successful. And in the African side, what are these Chinese workers suffering? We don't. I mean that that there is no 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 space for these stories, right? Yeah, that I think that comes as a big surprise for people. I think that uh, Cobus, wouldn't you agree that that would probably be a big surprise from the African perspective that these Chinese workers are in any way suffering? Yes, I think so, hundred percent so. Um, I think also because narratives of Africa suffering generally, and then Africa being exploited by by outside actors. They're so strong in Africa, you know, for for very very solid historical reasons. Um, so I think that is that's almost a default way that that many Africans think of 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 their relationship with the outside world, and you know, and and so so to a certain extent, you know, on the one hand, I think there is just there would be a resistance to just simply characterizing that experience as suffering or exploitation or victimization and then even if they do then the you know kind of the default next you know step is kind of boohoo well you know <laughs> because you know because the 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 perception is that that it pales that experience pales in comparison with with africa's historical you know experience with with outside actors um, Miriam, so would it be fair to, to talk about this as, a, as essentially a kind of a dueling, dueling set of, of victimization narratives? Um, you know, where, where each, each person is, is coming to the interaction, you know, kind of especially over, over several interactions with an, an increasingly ingrained feeling of being exploited or being kind of mistreated by the other side? Or is there, is there any kind of space where, where the two can see the other side's experience and, you know, kind of actually come to some form of like shared experience. I think there definitely is. Yeah. And I actually talk about um, the use of humor in my book as well on the construction side and the joking relations that um, Chinese foremen have with their, with their workers. So there's a lot of, but then there's this joking relationship. Anthropologists have written about this, that there is this tension always between animosity and, and friendliness. So there is this kind of underlaying, we are not quite the same and we 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 don't quite like you but we we still we we have to find a way again of 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 dealing with each other and and collaborating but i think the narrative of uh, victimhood among the chinese is very complex it's not only tells about the experiences on the construction site where they find that workers are um, not listening and um, and are lazy, and then this is kind of a recurring narrative: the the indolence of local workers. But it's also um, tied, I argue, in my book to workers' experiences at home and their position in Chinese society, which very much reflects a Chinese society in flux, where they're quite on the margins and 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 and. Um, also experience this marginality in China. And this goes back to that being stuck between China and, and Africa. Um, so, and I also put it in historical um, perspective because Chinese in Africa back in the Mao period and, and later on enjoyed a much higher reputation. They were celebrated as, as heroes of the nation, whereas now um, a lot of Chinese in Africa, it's, it's not a very, it's not very highly regarded to um, work, at least so they said, they told me to work in Africa. And of course, 
the Chinese community in, in Africa is um, is diversifying, and 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 this is a particular group of men who come from a rural background and um, are in Africa to to work, and 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 also, frankly, admitted that a higher salary was what actually drove them to Africa, and nothing more often. Um, so it's very different from now. You see that there's an, a growing number of um, tourists. Um, like media workers, journalists, and 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 more educated or um, Chinese with an urban background going to Africa, but this they hardly communicate with this kind of rural. The rural urban divide gets um, transported to 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 Africa, so it's a very different group. And I have to um, emphasize that this book is really about um, about the really those at the bottom of the corporate hierarchy and of, of both Chinese state-owned companies and, and privately owned companies. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at WitzChinaAfrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. Let's talk about their role in Chinese society. And you, you touched on this quite a bit in the book where, you, and again, I'm a little confused by what you said and just because you said in, their standing in Chinese society is fluid. But on the other hand, you also wrote that said only by migrating are they able to stake claim to social presence in a rapidly developing Chinese society. And I think this is interesting because Chinese society itself is one where the social order is changing quite a bit, very, very rapidly. So where these people fit is is interesting. You also wrote, Yu and his peers were driven or rather pushed by a sense of insecurity, buckled as they were under the weight of what they called social pressure in China. So talk to us a little bit about where in the hierarchy they fit, and, and by going abroad to Africa, does that elevate them, or does that castigate them out as part of just the emigres who leave and never come back, and their social standing, and that of their family social standing in China is also impacted as well? Yeah, perhaps to clarify, first, there were three main groups of uh, road builders. One was the old hands, and this group is, is shrinking very rapidly, but these men um, in over in their 50s and maybe 60s, they um, were assigned employment in the companies they worked for and then were sent to Africa. Then there was a group of fresh graduate students who were recruited often on campus and came to Africa right after graduation uh, without work experience. And there was a group of peasant workers, how they self-identified themselves as often as peasant workers, who had worked on construction sites and um, sometimes on factory floors in in China and then grasped the opportunity to earn a higher salary in Ethiopia. But what you see um, is very much the changes in the construction industry in China and, and infrastructure construction especially um, have pushed people out because... Uh, in a way, China is still going on growth mode in terms of engineers that they um, churn out each year at the colleges and 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 machinery that they produce and and, and materials etc. And 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 people have talked uh, of a, a spillover, and the spillover is not only in terms of um, commodities and 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 kind of technology, but also human resources. 
often there is not um, work actually work for for these men in uh, in China, and if there is work, it's highly casualized, uh, very insecure, and it doesn't pay very well. And so going to Africa. Um, is very attractive because not only do these men earn a higher salary, but they have more job security because the companies they invest in them by buying a flight, um, air ticket, um, visa, work permit, and um, and housing and meals. Everything is provided for them, and so they can really save money. Like they can earn dry money, as some called it. Um, because if they would have lived and worked in China, there's a high costs of um, how like social life and but also rent and food and everything is very expensive, especially in the cities. And so in 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 Ethiopia, they were able to to earn to save actually rather than earn really save money. Um, so so it's very much the employment conditions that in China that drove them out, but also this really high social mobility over the past few decades in China really has pushed people to improve and to advance in life has really become an expectation in China, if not a duty of every citizen to 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 get higher than than where your parents are or left off and and also again the next generation is is of course very important like sometimes i would ask uh, engineers why are you still here and then some would say we do this for the next generation um so so of course family is is very important here as well you know so frequently one one of the criticisms against um against Chinese workers in Africa, frequently coming from Africans, is that there's such low levels of integration into wider African society. Um, and obviously, you know, it's, it's, it's one thing if one is only there for six months to work on a project, but for, you know, as you mentioned, some of these people um, have been in Africa for a long time. Um, what are some of the, of the barriers to integration that you've seen? Like, why, why isn't it easier, considering that they're facing so much pressure in China and, and some of them find it difficult to, to go back Back to China, what is barring them from finding a really a new, a, a, a full new home in Africa? The level of integration really depends on the sector. Um, so construction work requires people to move from one side to another, and then they move to another project in on the other side of the country, and so they're they're on the move. And because of this, in my view. Um, People are reluctant to invest and 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 build these social uh, relations with the local community um, because they know they will move somewhere else. Another factor, and and this is of course different um, when you look at the re- retail or wholesale sector, where the Chinese are naturally forced to build good relations with the local community because they are their customers, right? And so you see much more integration going on in that sector. So this is one point. And the second point is also, if you look at Chinese migration to Africa, it's a very particular type of migration where migrants go from a a relatively wealthy uh, country to a less wealthy country. So in a way, they migrate down rather than migrating up. What you see, for instance, Africans moving to Europe. And so a lot of these migrants and and I know there are other stories, especially in the retail sector, where a lot of Chinese migrants are coming to Africa to stay. 
Um, but these men I worked with, they still had in mind to go back to um, to China and build up a life in in China. And that commitment also prevented them from investing in everything, like in every way, financially, socially, um, culturally, in terms of language learning, in in Ethiopia. So I guess let's go to a more fundamental question is, why does China have to bring in so many workers like Mr. Yudi's migrant labor? Because this really is one of the fundamental complaints of African stakeholders is that they believe that Chinese workers like Mr. Yu and the people you've profiled in your book about Ethiopia uh, should be done by local labor. Why is it necessary at all to bring in uh, workers who are manual, as you said, they are at the bottom end of the pyramid? Um, Africa is, has a lot of unemployed people. Why, why is it necessary at all to have workers like Mr. Yu? So this is related to the spillover effect I, I talked about. And what you see, there's a big difference between state-owned companies and privately-owned companies. You see that privately-owned construction companies who often work under as subcontractors of these bigger state-owned companies, they localize very quickly because they they, they have an interest in, in keeping production costs slow and, and, um, and they're much more eager to, to, to adapt to, to the local environment, whereas the, the bigger state-owned companies, they have to keep to a, to a quota of uh, intake of uh, graduate, fresh graduate students each year. And so they get a number of graduate students and they have to put them to work, and, <laughs> which is sometimes problematic. And, and you see that still back in, back in 2011, and now again I was in Ethiopia just over the summer, is that state-owned companies on some projects, they employ many Chinese and some they don't even have work for. <laughs> um, and this is, of course, very different than with the privately, uh, privately owned companies, but they have to keep these to these quotas and put people, people to work. So there's this incentive, like one um, Chinese engineer put it somewhat ironically, the, the Chinese state rather have these people to go to Africa to, than to Tiananmen. So the Chinese state is very much interested in putting people to work. And, um, and so the BRI now is, um, is a very important venue to, to, to do so, to, to have these people to provide work for them, uh, for not only for, for the employees, but also for the state-owned companies. The, the BRI, in a way, serves state-owned companies to provide them new projects and opportunities to, to earn money. So are they doing work that local Africans should or could be doing? Yes, um, but this is very much so at the managerial level. So what you see is that Chinese state-owned companies, and here again you have to separate these two state-owned companies, they work with an all-Chinese management, often down to, um, to like the basic man- managerial functions. Um, these now, especially in Ethiopia, and I, th- I assume also in other African countries, um, there's an increasing number of very good universities and colleges um, that have engineering programs of, um, and and there are many Ethiopian engineers who are equally qualified to uh, take up these positions. That's right, but not on the on on. 
say the actual labor is done by Ethiopians, so that the labor question really concerns the professionals rather than 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 the workers. Yeah, that's. I, I can see why the that particular that 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 strata of of low level management, you know, kind of that that can be a particular kind of zone of conflict. That's right. Um, you know, where where they kind of where they kind of swash in between the the structures of the company and and the the workers themselves. That's right. That's right. So you have the foreman, of course, the the Chinese foreman, often. Um, and I've seen that this with other type of companies. So there was one company I, I worked with for a longer period of time, where which was all Ethiopian, but had one Chinese manager. And actually looking at the Ethiopian foreman in the company, they, they were much more um, efficient <laughs> and, and better able to, um, to um, how do you say, manage the, the, the local workers because there were no language barriers, etc., etc. So, so there are positions um, that can be filled by Ethiopians and, and, and help efficiency and production. That's, that's right. Of course, it's, very, um, it's, a, it's a very controversial topic. And um, what I'm talking about, it's not many positions because like the, the the kind of higher level top level is it is people would argue still good to have that um kind of chinese management there two questions wrapped up into one just to close our discussion today um over the 10 years that you've been researching this issue how have you seen this change uh, the relationship uh, between Ethiopians and Chinese in terms of those workers that you've been studying. And also, when you publish this information, which goes against the narrative, it is surprising for some people. Uh, were you, did you receive any blowback or criticism? Or what was the response from people? Uh, so I, I asked a lot of questions there and mm. wrapped up in one, but we're just running short on time. But So if you could just give us kind of an overview of again, how it's changed and what the response has been to your research. Yes, yeah, so my project, the projects I looked at preceded, uh, two of them at least, preceded the BRI. And the BRI is often talked of as a turning point. And it might be in many Central Asian countries, but it's not, in my view, in Ethiopia. Nothing has changed, really. The only thing that changed was the discourse. And so there I see a big change, um, because back in 2011, 12, these men um, didn't quite have a purpose um, apart from their personal desire to to earn a higher salary and to get ahead in life. Now they actually have, and they're they've become um, more confident. And 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 I think generally, um, if I can say, happier with uh, with the work they're they're doing because they get that extra bit of recognition recognition. So I see a, a big change in um, in the discourse. Another change is also an increased anxiety of being able to go back to China. Because in 2010, 11, 12, there were still more opportunities to, to go back and reintegrate in the construction sector to, to get a job in, say, real estate construction. But this has become harder. So everybody's kind of rumoring like who has come back and how much do they make and 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 shall I go back or maybe I can't and 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 so there was much more anxiety of maybe not being able to go back to China and um, so that has changed as well in terms of the relationship between Ethiopians 
and、uh, Chinese. Actually, I see a lot of continuities there.、Um, of course, the Chinese presence has seeped into all kinds of、um, spheres in in life, and 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 people Ethiopians have become more. Accustomed to this Chinese presence, like in the beginning, it was like, "Oh, what are these all these people doing here?" And then, often Ethiopians described it as a as a wave,、uh, kind of a very overwhelming、um, feeling of 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 all these Chinese individuals coming to our country. But now they're more more accustomed to it. But the same also on the Ethiopian side, anxieties of what to do with the kind of new. Uh, forms of dependency that are created through this relationship are still very present. So I see a lot of continuities actually in these ten years as well. What was the response to your book?、Um, I think it's too early.、Um, <laughs> I I don't know yet. <laughs> well, let's hope we get we we provoke some response、uh, through our through our discussion today. I hope so. <laughs> The book is Tales of Hope: Tastes of Bitterness, Chinese Road Builders in Ethiopia.、Uh, it is very much an unprecedented ethnographic research, as it's touted to be. You don't hear this bottom-up story at all,、uh, particularly from the Chinese side, and it's a very, very important part of the discussion that is missing, and that Miriam Dreesen, who is a postdoctoral researcher at the Oxford University China Center, has done a truly A just inspiring job, and in part because, and I say this as a non-academic, and oftentimes I complain about academic writing on the program because I do find it inaccessible.、Uh, you write with a style called literary nonfiction, and it's very similar. I felt I, when I was reading it,、uh, to Howard French's Second Continent in the sense that it was highly accessible to laypeople and in a very narrative style where we get to meet people like Ubohai. That worker that you profiled, and、uh, so congratulations on the book. It is available now by Hong Kong University Press. Do you know where people can buy it? Is it is it accessible on places like Amazon? Yes, and that's right. You can just buy it from Amazon. <laughs> Excellent. And is there a Kindle edition? Not yet, but there will come、oh. uh, one soon. <laughs> okay. I mean, is it eighty? Is it eighty five dollars per book? Some 40, outrageous academic price. Ah, no, it's forty five dollars,、oh, and it's a hardcover for forty five dollars. What is it with you, academic people, to make books so expensive? I want my books to be nine dollars and ninety nine cents. But、uh, okay, forty five dollars at least is accessible.、Uh, Miriam, thank you so much for taking the time, and、uh, really, we really appreciate、uh, you you joining us today, and also the contribution you've made to the discourse. Thank you very much. Yeah, Kobus. I mean, after all the years that you and I have been have been looking at this story, I haven't really focused much on on that area. On what are the feelings, the emotions, the expectations? What is it like for those Chinese workers? Again, so much of our discussion on the labor tensions that exist、uh, all are from the African side towards the Chinese, and oftentimes putting the Chinese in a point of kind of dehumanized uh, existence, uh, no agency, as she pointed out, and and again. We're not trying to necessarily take a side in this debate. We're just trying to really shine a light on another stakeholder, which is at the bottom of the pyramid, the very, very bottom of the pyramid. That's always the that's always the issue. Yes, exactly. That's always the issue with with these these narratives is they're always a lot more complicated than they seem.、Um, you know, so it's always important to kind of dig down deeper and deeper, deeper into into what seem like pretty clear narratives. You know, including things like oh. You know, Chinese are doing jobs that Africans should be doing in Africa, for example.、Um, and this is、um, this is 
really this kind of research I've been craving in, in China-Africa uh, relations for a long time. And it's rare because it's so difficult to do. You know, it's, it takes a long time. You have to go there. You have to spend a lot of time there. It's the kind of work that only, only anthropologists can do. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's really valuable to read. It's, 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 a, it's a fantastic read, actually, I think. And it's also the role of journalists to be looking at this kind of thing. So not just academics and scholars. Uh, Al Jazeera has done some phenomenal documentaries where they have managed to build the relationships to get inside the gates of some of these Chinese state-owned enterprises. But again, then so much of it is like that Vice report. Do you remember from a few years ago, correspondent Isabel Young went to the DR Congo and she shows up with a camera crew and says she wants to talk to a Chinese mining company. And of course they tell her to go away because any company would tell you to go away if you don't have an appointment. That's just normal behavior, especially if you show up with a camera crew. But what does Vice do? They put on the menacing music in the back. What are they trying to hide and whatnot? And I think that contributes to the broader perception that a lot of people have about Chinese companies who are working there. And because there is this lack of communication, I thought it's so interesting how she said the crews on the state-owned enterprises are moving from one location to another. So it's not really worth their time or their effort or their energy to get to know the local community because they're packing up and they're moving on to the next. And so it comes back to this point that you talked about, which is the perceptions are more complicated than the realities. And maybe some of those perceptions do have a grain of truth to them. So people say often that the Chinese don't assimilate with their African hosts. And I guess to some extent, well, those state-owned enterprises on those construction crews, that's true. They don't. They're there for a little bit and off they go. So in each of the stereotypes, there is always some truth. Yeah, what's, what's also what's very interesting for me also is that, you know, with... There is, there are these kind of kernels of truth in in these relationships. But then, what is interesting for me is also how complicated the emotional reality is. You know, so one of the themes that we didn't discuss with Miriam now, but but which comes up in the book quite a lot, is this this kind of disappointment articulated by Chinese workers that Africans aren't more grateful um, or don't at least acknowledge the kind of the the you know the how difficult it is to do that work there for them as Chinese workers and the the larger kind of impact that China's having on Ethiopian development and that is something that it's not that's not isolated to China it's something that that goes back a lot with different kind of expatriate communities in Africa and that you that I've heard also from uh, from state department officials where you know also disappointment that Africans don't, for example, give enough that, that, that America doesn't doesn't get more uh, public diplomacy um, profit from uh, from something like like all of the medical assistance that the U.S. does in Africa, you know, um, and that that need for the articulation of gr- of gratitude is really interesting for me. Yeah, but that's something that's a grievance that Donald Trump channels quite effectively. Yes, that we give, and he says it not just to Africa, but he says it to Europe. He says it. I mean, in fact, he's using it in the current Ukrainian scandal. Yes. We give you a lot of help. You need to help me in return. Uh, he said this about Japan, about South Korea, about pretty much everybody where he feels that we're being ripped off. So that sense of grievance that we're giving something and we're not being rep- appreciated and respected, it's interesting how that worker, Yu Bohai, and Donald Trump, I think, are probably sharing a very similar sentiment there, that when, when you're sacrificing either money or time or people or energy or whatever, uh, that the recipient should express a little more gratitude. That is, that's very interesting. I never really thought about it that way, that you kind of framed it, but it is very interesting because I think that is 
definitely the politics of the moment, at least in the United States. Yes, and you could definitely see how how what a kind of itchy, uncomfortable situation that that becomes from an African perspective. You know, like with all of these different international players all being disappointed that you're not grateful enough. You know, that's even as you just barely trying to survive and to develop. I mean, all of that it becomes very complicated. Okay, I can't recommend enough that you check out Miriam Dreesen's book. Uh, if you don't want to spend $45 to buy it, there is a really nice kind of preview edition that's, you know, it's about 40 pages that's on the Hong Kong University uh, Press website. We'll put a link to that in our show notes. Uh, you can read, again, a good chunk of it. You get to know Yubo Hai and some of the characters that she talks about and get a gist of her writing style, which is very, very non-academic. And I can't say that enough because it's a pleasure to read Miriam's writing. And and that is not an easy compliment for me to say to, to somebody who works at a place like Oxford University. So <laughs> I don't mean to sound so negative. I always come off so rude and insensitive to our academic experts. I don't mean to. I just mean to say I don't want to work too hard when I read. And uh, oftentimes that happens. So, uh, please, no disrespect. Well, the, acad- the academics can just can just quote the, the Chinese workers as our, our efforts are not appreciated. We're eating bitterness every day. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I, I do want to share love to our academic listeners. So please don't 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 hate me for that. Uh, nonetheless, uh, very quickly again uh, before we go, uh, just want to invite everybody to check out our new website, ChinaAfricaProject.com. Also to subscribe to our newsletter. ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe, a daily email newsletter on all of the news. Kobus and I are working on it every day. I'm putting it together. Kobus is editing it. Kobus is also putting together the end of the week newsletter. So this is joint effort. So if you like this podcast, you will really, really like this daily email newsletter. If you do China Africa news for a living, if you work in Washington, if you are in policy analysis, if you are in academia and studying China Africa, there is nothing else like this. And I don't say that to be to to brag. I just say it out of excitement that we're doing something that nobody else is doing right now. And we think that it's really cool by curating news, by creating original content, and by connecting people through our expert network. So we'd love to have you a part of this community. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Kobus and I will be back again next week. If you'd like to get in touch with us, again, you can find us on all our social media platforms or on our website. We're also accessible by email, eric at chinaafricaproject.com and kobus at chinaafricaproject.com. Thank you so much for listening. For Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. We'll be back next week. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China in Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com. Mm-hmm.